Hello, everyone, and welcome to the GitDrop.com MXGP season review, and we'll also cover MX2. Andy McKinstry, how are you doing? What do you think about the GP season? Oh, unbelievable season. How am I doing? Not very good. I miss MXGP already. It's only been over a week. Devastating that the season's over. But the good thing is it's back in February. But yeah, just on the season, unbelievable. The best MXGP season in my lifetime anyway. Unbelievable. Never usually get it coming down to three riders with two rounds to go. Potentially even one round to go. Tim Geyser still wasn't too far away. So unbelievable, really. Unbelievable season. And uh, it's going to be tough to top that. It could be another 27 years before we'll top that season again. You missed the 90s, didn't you? Well, what year? All of them, really, to what you would remember. Stiverts and Portelli and Bizarre Coyote. Yeah, pretty much. But yeah, not much no, I can do about that. <laughs> well, to be fair, there isn't. Anyway, this year was, as you say, epic. We're going to have to start with the winner, but I think we'll have to bring in Fev, Roman favorite Tim Geiser, Jorge Prado, and T- Antonio Caroli in as well to this, because with the, their injuries and crashes, especially Prado and Caroli, until that happened, there was five legitimate riders going for the World Championship this year. And if luck had went a couple of other riders, where they could easily have been world champion. So all five of those guys really, really attributed to how good the season was for a long, a long part of the year. And even when the when the riders got injured, once they're out of the championship, they still come back and were running up front. You know, all white Prado with his starts at the end of the year, even though he was struggling with the back. And Tony Crowley won a Grand Prix with a couple of rounds to go. He was on the pace at the times he was Hurling's wingman. So all all these five riders really contributed to what this season was and latterly we had the Yamahas of Glenn Kohlenhoff and especially Jeremy Sear coming in as well so whatever way you look at it Hurlings has beaten probably the stiffest competition there's been Andy missed four motos to do it including the the DNF and and Arco to come back and do that under the under the pressure that he had to deal with and everything else he's had to deal with this year as well as the last two years probably more impressive from a mental side this season than his speed, actually. Yeah, just on those five riders, like these aren't just any riders. This is special. And it's unfortunately with Antonio Crowley retiring, this is an end, an end of an era, really, because those five riders you mentioned are just unbelievable speed. The level is at an all-time high. I'm not sure if it's obviously MXGP is, is usually a very, very high level, but with those five I'm not sure the level has been as high as it was this year. And like you mentioned, there was a few injuries here or there. But apart from miss, uh, a couple of guys missing a couple of GPs, they were able to all finish the season, which is pretty rare. So the level was very, very high all season long. And yeah, definitely Jeffrey Hurling's um, toughest championship under his belt yet. Because usually when he wins a championship, he completely dominates it. This year, it came down to the final round. And like you said, mentally, he was in a good place. And he got the job done ahead of Roman Fever, who, even though he didn't win the title this year, I feel like in terms of speed, this was the fastest we've ever seen Fever. I know he did win that title, but the speed this year was phenomenal, he showed. And even though he only won one GP this year, I feel like he could have won more than the one. And... Uh, yeah, just to touch on it again, Antonio Crowley, who will fully retire, or retire fully from MXGP. What a rider. What a man. It's just unbelievable. And hopefully we'll see him make a few wildcard rounds next year. Yeah, it looks like Crowley's going to have some 
fun, as it were, next year. No championship pressure. Maybe race in America. Maybe do a few Grand Prix. You might even see him at the Nations with a with a number one plate. Who knows that? That would be pretty cool. And obviously, he's he's doing the Paris Supercross as well. So it looks like he's he's able to relax, but still riding at such a high level that he's able to race. Should be able to race competitively next year. Of course, he won't have maybe the intensity of of race after race under his belt like the, the regular competitors, but. You would imagine he's still be pretty competitive next year, and it's probably a nice way for him for him to sign off with with different races around the world. Absolutely, and then obviously he's gonna like he loves riding his bike, so he'll probably ride quite a lot during the winter. You know, it'll not be a normal pre season for him, so he'll just have fun, take the bike out whenever he feels like it, and that means he still still should have the fitness. And um, next year might not have the race intensity. But, you know, he can go out and have fun, less pressure. Who knows? If he does do a few wild cards, he could be right at the front. No, I might be going off topic here a little bit. Oh, but no. obviously his, his, his main role next year will be uh, helping the younger riders. Do you think um, he can help Mario Guardanini to be a championship contender or Simon Lackenfelder, who hasn't officially signed yet, but we think he's also heading to Dakarta? And then I'm also wondering how closely work with Prado as well. I think Guadagnini, yes, obviously you have the Italian connection there and he's shown so much promise already. And being Italian, I don't think you're going to get a rider who isn't going to listen to what Crowley says. I would imagine he will just hang off every word Crowley says, at least I would hope so, because he, he looks like he has the talent to be a world championship contender. You know, what he's, we'll get on to MX2 later, but what he did this year was really, really impressive in his first season. So to me, the talent's there. He probably just needs a bit of experience on guidance and with, with the team he has that, but specifically with Caroli, he has a rider who's kind of lived every moment. He's lived injuries, he's lived titles, and he's lived the, the disappointments. So he's a, he's a good rider as a sounding board as well, never mind just how to go around the track fast and for lines and, and all that sort of thing. So I would imagine Guadagnini especially, yes. Simon Lagenfelder, you would imagine it would be something similar. Although Lagenfelder, he has talent, but we're not, but don't quite know his level yet. He maybe hasn't got into a team or, or injury-free to where he can really show that, that full potential. If he goes to Dakarla and he gets to work with Caroli, that you would imagine be the optimum setting to really show your ability. And again, to have Caroli there, he would probably a bit be a bit stupid not to at least try it to see how that works for you. Jorge Prado's probably learned most things he's going to learn anyway. But in terms of riding and in terms of what, what he needs to do, he already is a two-time world champion. He knows he can win. He's probably annoyed Crowley several times during the last two seasons on the track. But I think even for Prado, I'm sure there's times that Crowley's knowledge and experience will, will be, used for him, be useful for him in certain situations. So you'd imagine even there that that, that would be useful. But to me, the, the biggest learning curve would be for the MX2 riders. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think um, obviously Guardini has, has been working with Crowley already this year, but he'll get a lot more help from him because yeah. obviously that's going to be his, full, his main role next year to help the younger riders. So I think of Gar- the main goal should be for Guardini to you know to win maybe three or four GPs next year. And then for Lagenfelder, if he can do what Guardini done this year, maybe. Obviously not going to be easy, but he has got a lot of talent and working with Crowley. Well, should bring him on leaps and bounds. And I think you've summarized the Prado one there quite well. It'll be interesting how the two get on because you can tell from their balls around the track there's been a quite a bit of tension there probably. So 
probably need to let the dust settle between those two for a while. Yeah, I'm sure after six months or a year or whatever, it'll all be forgotten about. <laughs> well, I'd say a month, you know. Now they aren't rivals, I don't think it'll be a problem. Um, but Prado's been riding with Crowley for a couple of years. I think he's pretty smart. A, smart enough himself. B, smart to learn what works and what doesn't from Crowley. And part of the reason he's annoying Crowley is probably because he knows all Crowley's tricks to be able to, to, be able to hold him off as well. But I also want to say just uh, well done to Infant Moto Racing. The, the circumstances of this championship weren't easy with COVID. Doing it in different countries, having to do the midweek thing again and all the last five rounds in Italy. Generally, you want a different country for, for each round. But this year, things have had to be compromised again. But to get 18 rounds all in, a fantastic championship to boot. I think they have to be applauded as well. Yeah, they've done a really good job this year. Um, really good um, take the hat off them really I mean last year was more difficult for them I would say but you know they delivered last year and they've came in this year and thanks to what they're doing you know it was the best championship ever in my opinion so they can only be applauded for that just before we start talking about riders and stuff uh, just on the tracks this year I would say far Matterly and Latvia where maybe they done a little bit too much track prep and it wasn't too rough. I think aside from those two rounds, I think they got the track prep, in my opinion, pretty much spot on this year. Better than what it was three or four years ago where they were doing a lot of leveling. I feel like this year was an improvement and the majority of the tracks were very technical this year. So not sure what your opinion is on that one, but I think the tracks were te- very technical this year, aside from maybe Matterly and Latvia First Moto. Apart from that, I, I thought they'd done a good job with the track prep this year too. Yeah, I think at times they could have been rougher. Certain times they maybe didn't need to completely level it overnight on, on the Saturday or sometimes they even level certain sections after practice or in between the first two motos. You know, even at times Paul Mallon was, was complaining about taking away a rut in a corner or something where there maybe was a passing option and then they leveled that, which created one line again. I would prefer to see them get left a bit rougher, but usually by the second motors, the track was back in good shape. But I would say on certain tracks, sometimes the EMX, they ended up rougher than the MXGP day at times. And really, that should be the, be the other way around. So maybe a bit too much work at times at tracks. Sometimes I've seen videos of the 80s, especially older bikes with less suspension, and the, the tracks were actually rougher then. And with how good the bikes are now and the suspension they have, that probably shouldn't be the case. But of course, you want to keep everyone safe as well. So there definitely is a compromise there. At times, I feel they got it spot on, and at other times, they maybe overdid the, the track prep. I would prefer to see them leave it and keep it relatively rough and obviously take away anything that, that, that's dangerous, but not too bad. But I would probably like to see a wee bit less track work next season. But again, it looks like it's going back to the two-day format, so that could change things as well. As well. There might be more bikes on track on the Sunday and the Saturday. So we'll, we'll wait to see how that develops. Okay. Let's start with the winner, Jeffrey Hurlings. I mentioned before we got all completely sidetracked there for 10 minutes that his ability mentally probably surpassed the speed. How impressive his speed was at times this year because I feel at certain moments he was measured in his results and how much he wanted to risk. And then in other moments, especially at the end when he really needed to win, he showed that extra speed. But for me, it was his ability when it really, really counted that he had to win, he pulled it off, and that was the most impressive for me. Yeah, I think you have hit the nail on the head there. I think if Jeffrey 
what if he'd been through this year, what he'd been through in previous years, I'm not sure he would have been able to cope and deliver this world championship uh, title. But as I say, everything makes you stronger. And I think he's learned from the past and that has made him a more complete rider and a better rider probably. You know, in 2018, the speed he showed every, every week was unbelievable, but there was no way he was going to be able to keep riding like that every GP and show that speed. Because if he did and worked that hard, he'd be burnt out by no time. So I think he's went back a little bit. He probably, off the track, I think he's maybe in a happier place. And, you know, he doesn't have to do his four days riding that he used to do. And he maybe doesn't have to train with the same work ethic as he did in 2018. And he's able to accept that now. Whereas in the past, I think he might have struggled to do that. So credit to him, really, that he's... He's been able to take a step back, maybe enjoy life a little bit more off the track and then fully deliver on it. And that's what we've seen this year. The amount of bad luck that he had, it would have been very easy to get flustered and, and just lose the plot completely. But he was able to rebound and mentally, he was able to come out a lot stronger. And credit to him, very much deserved winner of this world title. And if he can stay fit, how many more can he win? But that's the question with Jeffrey Hurlings. Um, can he last? a season uh, uh, for more than one year in a row because that's been his Achilles heel in the past. But fingers crossed he can because if he can, what a championship we might have in 2022 as well. Tim Geyser's not going to go anywhere. Roman Fevre's still going to be fast. And then you've got Jorge Prado, who doesn't give a crap. Um, he'll be looking to battle for this championship next year. So, And he's coming fast, I believe. So it could be epic. Yeah, although the danger would be that Hurlings goes back to maybe his 2018 level because he's got this under his belt now. He's five world titles, only Joel Robert, Tony Caroli and Stefan Everts have more. So even in the world titles, he's got himself into that legendary status as one of the all-time greats. Even accounting for all the world championships he's missed, I think once he look, get five world titles, you're something very, very special. Added to that, he's two wins away from equaling Stefan Everts' record. Again, that's going to be another legacy factor. And I think a wee bit like when Stefan Everts equaled his father, Harry, at four world titles, it maybe took the pressure off. And once Jeffrey's got this five, especially in the way he won it, as I said, the mental capability to ride under pressure, come back from those injuries and show himself and everyone else that he still had that wee bit of extra speed when he needed it. He might become even more mature, but also a bit faster this year because when you think back to the start of this year, he basically missed two years with very bad injuries. And it took him a while almost to get back to that speed. And when he did, he got his broken shoulder blade. So to me, I don't think we've seen the best of Jeffrey Hurlings this year. And he still managed to win it. He's he's another level to go. And confidence-wise, that's going to be maybe more difficult for everyone else. The guy who probably has the most improvement, as you said, is Jorge Prado. For two years, he probably hasn't got to show his best. He has at times. But with the injuries two years ago, injuries at the end of this year, the covid the end of two years ago and the start of this year, he hasn't had a full run yet. And with his starts, he's going to be very, very dangerous. And Tim Geyser, he always seems to find a wee bit of speed each year. It'll be interesting to see if he can do that this year. I think he might because he seemed pretty annoyed and disappointed at the last round there this season. And he'll, to me, he already seemed very motivated for next year. But this was probably the year if they were going to beat Jeffrey Hurlings relatively straight up with what his injuries was the year to do it after the two previous years Hurlings had. It's hard to come back to that form. 
So I think Hurlings is going to be the guy to beat, and he might be harder to beat next year. As you said, it's up to everyone else to up their game, and I think they can do. It's almost who ups their game the most for me. Yeah, although one thing I would say is I feel like whenever Hurlings was leading uh, races and stuff this year, you know, he almost had a little bit of Antonio Crowley about him. You know, he was starting to control the lead more. So actually, he probably had that more speed if he needed I mean, I think it was a month of it where he was 15th buried down and whenever he got up into, whenever he passed Fernandez and Prado, you know, he cut that 14 seconds down to Fever and like a couple of laps. So that was the speed that he probably had maybe all season, but he didn't feel like he needed to show it. So I feel like he actually has the speed. He's just a smarter rider now, which is actually dangerous for the rest of the pack because if he can start and learn how to control uh, the speed at the front, he's taking less risks and he done that this year. So I feel like it's it's just more of the same from Jeffrey next year and he's favoured for the title, but he needs to just av- avoid the, the injuries. I think that's that's the main thing for me. If he can avoid those injuries, I do feel like he's favoured for this championship if he just keeps riding the same way he did this year because I feel like he, uh, he had that speed if he needed it, but he only really showed us in two or three or four instances when he really needed it, that he still has that 2018 speed, in my opinion. Yeah, but I don't think he came into the season with that speed in Russia. And oh, no, no, not at, the, so, no not, at, not at the start, but that's because he didn't really have a winter, to be fair. Exactly, so now he's coming in as world champion, and presuming he doesn't get injured, he's going to come in stronger. Presuming nobody lands on him again, he's not going to have that dip either where he's riding injured and making a couple of mistakes. He had that crash in Latvia as well. So I envisage he will control it, but he'll be more confident in when he wants to use his speed because he's shown that when his back's against the wall, he has the speed. To me, this was a season that gave him more confidence because he knows he can control races now. He knows he can win even when he's missed a round, and he knows that when everything's on the line, he can deliver mentally and with his speed. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've hit the nail on the head there. That is the one thing going into next year, all being well, whenever the season starts in February, you know, he'll, he'll have a, a winter behind him like he didn't have next year. So the way he ended the season this year, he should be able to start the season like that next year. Although at the same time, I do think he's mature enough now to just not take any risks at the first couple of rounds if he doesn't need to and just get on the podium. I, f- I feel like he could do that. But it will be interesting when the gate drops for 2022, what's going to happen? Because he also won't want other guys getting confident at the start of the season. But I do feel like he knows now it's a long game and he can catch him in the long grass if required. Yeah, he can get the mower out, <coughs> cut that grass down, <laughs> find them. However, <laughs> uh, let's stick with green. Roman Fevre, an absolutely fantastic year for me. You said it and I would probably tend to agree with you. It'll be interesting actually to get Roman's take on that. I actually think he was maybe slightly better this year than he was the year he won the world title. He came so close I know he's changing teams, but I would imagine the general settings for the bike and everything are going to be the same. He's still going to be on the Kawasaki. So presuming that all gels, he's definitely going to be a contender again next year. You would just hope that the the disappointment of this year, they don't have a lot of time to really regroup. And Roman's doing the Paris Supercross as well, so he's going to have a bit bit less time off. But he's able to come back full of energy and positivity again at the first round because with Prado, you would imagine he's going to come out stronger. You don't want to give up too many points early. Yeah, that's it. Um, I mean, Roman Fever was unbelievable in 2015 when he won the MXGP world title as a rookie. 
But what I would say is a lot of riders got injured that year. And as, as good as he was, as unbelievable as he was, this year the level was just through the roof. So I do believe this was his better year um, in terms of speed anyway. My worry for Fevre is how are you going to cope with that? He was he went, he gave it everything he had this year. I do truly believe that he thought it was his year this year. It's going to be very, very difficult for him to come back for that and challenge for the world title again, I personally think. And also with switching the, the switching teams, it's not yet official, but Ice One, um, Ice One Racing will be running the factory Kawasaki team. Now, Fever was very comfortable with the, the, the setup from 2021 and it being a a French team, so it'll be interesting to see how that transitions as well. Yeah, although what will probably go in Roman's favour is his starts were very good this year, especially at the end of the year, and his speed at the end of the year was really high, but he was making less mistakes. Yes, I know he had that mistake on the very last moto, but you can kind of understand that with, with the pressure of that moment and the, the speed Hurlings was showing in those two laps, done the two fastest laps of the race. But aside from that, he was very consistent. He was beating Hurlings out of the gate every moto at the end of the year. And if he can carry that over, that should give him the confidence, you would imagine, to to run at the front because he's seen the front at times before we've seen with Fevre. He's been getting bad starts, especially on the Yamaha, and he's had to work his way through. And at times he hasn't even seen the front this year. He was at the front regularly and especially at the end of the year. So as I mentioned, presuming this bike remains relatively the same and can maybe even improve, his level this year, he has to be really pleased with it because he was even able to come through the pack and minimise damage. And even those crashes, he, small crashes he was having at the start of to the middle of the year, he actually improved on that a lot and maybe even got even faster as well. So there's there's so many positives from Rowan Fever's performances this year. It might just be the fastest he's ever ridden. But as you said, the, the question is, can he overcome the disappointment? Because when you've been that good all year, had no real injuries, and you still didn't quite get that title. That's it could be harder mentally more than anything for Roman Fever to come back. Certainly, talent and speed. He's probably on the level of his life right now. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point you made about the starts. I mean, before before the twenty twenty one season starts and positioning himself well in the first laps was his Achilles heel really. So it was good that he was able to sort that out with the with the Kawasaki, whatever way they were able to set the bike up, and obviously probably down to the rider too, improving his starts. That was a very big positive. The only thing I would say is going into 2022, as we've already said, Hurlings, I think at times, did what he had to do and we didn't see his true speed. We've seen that in a few motos, so we know he's got more speed if he needs it. Jorge Prado, I'm, I'm expecting him to, to step it up a level with his. So in conclusion, De Fever, even though he had an unbelievable season, it, he was riding really, really well. I'm just not sure how much more of a level he can take in terms of battling for this championship. So, but you know, that's that's going to be on him to have another really strong winter. And who knows? He could prove me wrong, and he could step it up in 2022. But it it, it remains to be seen if if he can go up another complete level, like we expect possibly Prado to do, and Hurlings. We already know he's the fastest man on the planet, so you don't have to worry about speed when it comes to him. Talking of speed, let's go to Tim Geyser. At the start of this year, he might just have been the fastest man on the planet, maybe the best level he's ever had. And some of his moto wins even further into the season. I can't remember what's around. It was maybe Spain or Germany or maybe Turkey. Actually, he beat Jeffrey's 
grade up on the hard pack with the ruts and he actually looks slower, but he was so smooth. So Geyser in terms of speed is really, really impressive. He had a few motos where he maybe wasn't getting the start, surprisingly. He was letting them down slightly on the Honda, something that he was always really good at. So it'll be interesting to see if Honda can get these starts back to being regular top three again. But Geyser's speed still blew me away at the start of this year. He was becoming the man to beat. And even with the, the hurling situation on the collarbone, he was still coming back until he had that collarbone injury. He was relatively controlling the championship. But when it really came down to those last couple of rounds, it looked like he got the momentum back in the final moto of, of Arco de Trentino. And then he had that disaster at the penultimate round. It's easy to forget just how close Geyser was to coming back to winning this championship after his collarbone injury as well. And for me, his speed, at least on the hard pack, he can win against anyone in the world there. And his sand has come up, as we should mention Fever in this as well, his sand level has come up so high that even if they can't beat Hurlings, they're going to run him relatively close and could well end up on the podium. Whereas before, especially maybe when Caroli was, was dominating five or ten years ago, whenever he was winning in the sand, his title challenges were maybe fourth, fifth, sixth, and losing a lot more points than what they would gain whenever they would beat Caroli on the hard pack. For me, it's a lot closer now, and Hurlings maybe isn't getting the advantage he would have in the sand because Fever and Geyser have upped their pace so much that they're as likely to, to maybe not win as Hurlings, but they're likely to be the, ne- the next guy there pushing him. So Geyser has a lot of the bases covered already coming in the next year. He now has extreme motivation after the way he lost this championship coming so close. He, for me, might be the strongest challenger to Hurlings, although we've still get to Jorge Prado. He could be a bit special as well. Yeah, just on Geyser, the way he started the season was absolutely phenomenal the first two rounds. You know, he won three from four motos. And you're thinking, Craigie, this could be his year. After those first two years, you have to say for his standards, now his standards are very, very high. He did go through a bit of a, a blip because he had to wait till Turkey to win another moto. So that was six rounds without winning a moto, I believe. And that's possibly where he actually lost the title. I think then he was just trying to play smart and keep the red plate, which at the time you can understand. But... For Geyser, not the Winamoto in, in six rounds, you, you don't really expect that from Geyser. You, you'd think he's going to win a moto every every other round, maybe, or if, at least every every three rounds, something like that. So after an unbelievable start to the season, I would say that little dip cost him. But then, like you say, at the end of the season, he sort of got his mojo back again. Obviously, what happened at month of the second corner, that killed him of the championship well and truly, which was a bit of a shame. But these things happen. That's racing. Only one guy can win this championship. And out of the three of them that were still standing at the end this year, you know, any of them, you couldn't really begrudge them with this title. So, yeah, Geyser can hold his head high. He'll, he's, he'll be very motivated for next year. Make no mistake about that. And Geyser is still a pretty young guy as well. So it's going to be interesting. I, f- I feel like I'm not sure he can also go up another level as, as similar to Fever. I'm not sure how much, how much room there is there for him Don't to doubt. go up another level. Don't doubt, Tim. But it's going to be interesting. <laughs> I think he can because he's done it every other year so far. But I think it's going to come from mostly from losing this year. He's going to be doubly determined next year. 
I knew he hadn't really made many big mistakes until check and lock it that that second race. Mm, yeah. The door for Hurlings to come back in. I don't think Hurlings was going to ride Lommel. And then Tim crashed. I think he was 51 points back and Hurlings thought, this is my chance. It's unlikely, but I have to do this. Otherwise, if I don't race in Lommel, it's definitely over. And then I think Tim crashed Lommel again, although he made an almighty comeback in that second moto because he still has that sound speed. But Tim will probably look back at that that collar, three moments really, that collarbone, mm-hmm. the crash and locket, and probably that uh, first turn penalty mm-hmm. debacle at, at Mantova as three moments where he really lost the championship and it was pretty small margins. So I think in his mind, he'll think he was controlling this championship for large parts of the year and he'll believe he can run with Hurling straight up. And I think he's going to come in with extreme motivation next year because Fevre had to deal with the motivation, the disappointment at the very last moto. And I think Tim, maybe a certain percentage of that was the penultimate round, and he knew he was the least likely of the three to win it, although still disappointed at the end of the final round. So he was maybe mentally more ready for revenge as such next year. So I expect him to come out firing again next season. And moderately based on the first round, everybody's good there, but Fevre and Geyser are actually really impressive around there as well. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head there with the three moments. There definitely the three moments where... He'll have the biggest regret, but you know, a bro- uh, crash and a broken collarbone, there's not an awful lot you can do about that. That's just part of the sport, I'm afraid. But in terms of his level, he can still be happy with this, the season he had. The riding was still unbelievable. And like you said, it was small margins. Those three um, key key parts of the season, really, which determined him finishing third, but he can still hold his head high. Actually, looking at the 2022 calendar, there's quite a lot of hard pack old school tracks if you take that into account you know he might not be far away next year yeah and then we'll get to this guy now Jorge Prado as I mentioned earlier he has not had a full season where he's totally healthy and this next incoming season he's going to be the main man on the team which I think he's wanted for a while so when you if presumably he stays healthy of course he comes through the winter healthy and he starts off for the first time in his MXGP career fully fit no health issues no injury issues, lungs repaired, body repaired, whole shots. He's going to be, I think, the biggest gain of what we've seen the, of all the championship contenders that Hurling is going to have to worry about. And we already know he doesn't give in to Hurlings. He doesn't give in to Fevre. He doesn't give in to Geyser. He doesn't care if he's leading and everybody's all over him. He almost makes them make the mistakes. And I think he's going to be a, a level ahead of where he was this year. He's going to be very exciting to watch. And he looks like he's going to be on the gas gas. So a Spanish synergy there. We saw how popular he already is in Spain. So he knows the amount of support he has as well. And with Caroli not there full time, but maybe actually in his corner helping him this time, he's everything he needs to, to go for the World Championship next year. Absolutely. I'm in agreement. I think Prado is going to be the the biggest challenger for Hurlings next year. In my mind, there's no doubt about it, really. I, I tipped them to win the title this year, actually. And, you know, he was just getting going just before that injury. He wasn't too far off the points. But then the injury happened. And, you know, it was never going to happen after that. But, um, yeah, like you said, he's just a nightmare for the other riders. He's an absolute <laughs> nightmare. They'll probably have nightmares about him over winter. Because you know, fine, rightly, Prado's going to get the whole shot and he doesn't give you an inch out in the track. So he's going to be there from lap one to 
to the very last lap in MXGP next year, provided he can stay injury free. And you know, by lap one, he's probably going to be leading. So whoever wins it's going to have to pass him a lot. And um, <laughs> the the more laps he gets under his belt, the the more experience he gets. And um, yeah, he'll be very very motivated. Um, obviously fifth this year it could have been a whole lot different if he if he stayed injury free. But there's no doubt in how much talent this kid has. And um, him and Crowley had a few um, pretty aggressive battling out on track next year. It could be him and Hurlings going at it. Yeah, and I would imagine, maybe not even necessarily with Hurlings, but with Fever and Gadget, there's tension building building there. Because there's only so many times you come up on a rider and he's, he can't pass him easily. And that's bound to get more and more frustrating each time. And if Prado comes in faster, healthier... And as a bona fide World Championship ch- challenge, that's going to create even more tension. The one good thing about in Caroli's mind about retiring is probably that he doesn't have to pass Jorge Prado anymore in his life for what would be a championship on the line or a, or a race win. He's lost probably a couple of podiums and maybe even a couple of race wins over the last two years and certainly a good few points. So if there's a silver lining to his retirement aside from his health, that's probably it. And now he's going to get to advise Prado and watch Prado for straight everyone else next season. Yeah, well, hopefully uh, Crowley does do a couple of wild cards. We might still have to battle him on track yet. But yeah, that's certainly one silver lining there. Um, the amount of those two, uh, the amount of times those two came together in the track this year, they always seemed to find each other. But it was fantastic to watch some brilliant battlings. But yeah, I'm sure Crowley was getting frustrated and behind him a few times. But but like everyone else, really. But that's what makes Prado so special. He's very mentally strong and he just doesn't care. Yeah, he's, for me, fantastic to watch with his style, but also the way, because he's so smooth, you don't think he has that fight that you would maybe see from a Caroli or a Carmichael or whatever, but he definitely does. He just does it very stealthily. He moves slightly across the track. He's all usually on the right side of, of dirty. He's usually relatively clean, but aggressive in his own kind of way, but he just looks so graceful on the bike that you almost think he's just riding, but he's, He's putting everything into it. We saw the performers from Spain coming back from what happened in Germany, where when he won that moto against Herlings in Germany, he was only nine points off the lead, right in it. Came back to Spain, still sore from that, and gave absolutely everything he had to get on the podium. So he has the fighting spirit. He has the raw speed, the natural talent. He certainly has the self-belief, and he has the home shots. And so for me, he's going to be he's pretty taking difficult. A lot of boxes. To, yeah, he's going to be difficult to beat with those starts. And Herlings might have to use that extra 1% of pace he showed at the end of this year. He needed it more often next year to run this kid down. Yeah, that's a good point you make. Absolutely. Uh, some of that speed that Hurlings maybe wasn't showing this year, he might have to show next year. That's that's for certain. Especially if Prado takes his riding up a level that we all expect him to. But it's set up for a fascinating season, that's for sure. Right, Jeremy Sewer. He's always under the radar. He was under the radar for most of this season because he had health issues. Although he was still getting consistent results in that top seven, eight, especially that five to seven position. And then he caught fire once he was feeling better. It was fantastic at Arco, fast again in Mantova. He ended up fourth in the championship. And if he can start the season like he's ended the season, which might have been his best form ever, you might have to start looking at him as a world championship contender because he was unbelievably fast at the end of the season. Yeah, it's quite unbelievable. The what he went through this year with health problems and Epstein-Barr virus, it just didn't seem like it was Jeremy Shearer's year. But after everything that went against him, for him to come out fourth in the world is still pretty amazing. 
I mean, some riders would absolutely dream of that. And for sure, for his standards, it was a bad season. So that is still very, very positive to come out fourth in the World Championship. Hopefully he can have a strong winter, no health issues, and go into 2022 and see him back riding the, the, with the level he showed at the end of this year. And it was nice to see him ride like the real Jeremy Sewer as well. Yeah, uh, we've, we've sort of missed that, and he he's the he he should be part of the the big five. Obviously, he ended up fourth this year, but due to consistency and a few guys missing races towards the end, but he can be part of the big five next year, which is just a ridiculous all time high all time high level. Really, hopefully, he can be part of that next year. I think another guy who with his broken ribs at the end of the season, he missed the last six motors of the year actually, but until then. For me, he'd been really, really impressive. Again, a couple of DNFs throughout the year. Restricted his championship, he ended up eighth. But Paul's Jonas, really impressive to me, mostly because he was maybe the one rider who consistently throughout the year, when he got the start, could go with that big five, as, as we call it. And I think next year, he's going to take that step again. But to come back from injuries that he had the year before, and for me, just to show that raw pace, was really, really impressive from Paul's Jonas. And eighth... If you hadn't watched the whole series or even just watched highlights and you're looking at the championship and making judgments off that, his eighth place in no way tells you how good Paul Jonas was riding this year. Yeah, Jonas was a revelation really at the start of this year. Really, really fast. He was sort of in that group behind the top five, but any time he did get a good start, he had the speed where he was able to follow quite a lot of the yeah. time. The problem with Paul's is he doesn't crash too much in my opinion. But when he crashes, he crashes. He does, Turkey yes. was crazy. Was, uh, yeah. yeah, he certainly knows. Like it's just unfortunate, really. These things can happen. But that's sort of the sort of things that he needs to call out. I would say. But it's not like I don't think he's riding on the edge too much because he doesn't have too many crashes. He's just very unfortunate that when he does throw it down the track, it's it always seems to be an unfor- unfortunate one. But. Yeah, he's a very tough guy, actually, because at the end of the year, he actually tried to ride with broken ribs. So that shows you what his determination is as well. Yeah, even think he can do that and then go out and try it a couple of rounds. is pretty impressive pain threshold as well for Paul Jonas. So he would be the guy I would be looking at to, to take that step. So I think Sawyer kind of showed he can be there in the last few rounds and Jonas showed in the first few rounds that he can be there as well. The other guy who will have to... Wonder, can he get back there? Because he used to be there was Glenn Codenhoff. He definitely improved at the end of the season. Both him and Sir level was pretty good. And it was nice for Yamaha to get that reward. But Glenn said at the end of the year, he wasn't happy with the season as a whole. And he doesn't have a lot of time really with this off season to, to make big adjustments. But you would think the end of the year has got to give him a bit of hope that he can get back on his, his real level next season. Absolutely. I mean, Yamaha half work to do. Um, up right up until February to get this guy comfortable because when this guy is comfortable, he has the speed to run the top five. But then not see it an awful lot this year um, compared to what we usually see. Um, he clearly wasn't too comfortable, especially at the start of the year. But like you said, as he got more races under his belt and towards the end of the season, he did look a lot more comfortable. Still not at the level that we know Glenn Coden caught. Glenn Kodenhoff can ride at, but hopefully him and Yamaha work their asses off this winter and um, he can be raring to go in February, a lot more comfortable on the bike, hopefully. Yeah, that bike seems for certain, some riders and obviously other guys click with it, but some riders just need a bit more time. 
they get comfortable on that machine and then when they do they're they're, they're back to their best so hopefully we'll see that that with Glenn he's had a lot of races on a lot of different tracks this year as well too you'd imagine all the data will help him going forward and I think we did see improvement at the end of this year he'll probably need a break right now but I'm sure his mind's already focused and it's probably hard for him to switch off because you want to feel like you've fulfilled your talent every year and I'm sure he doesn't feel like he really showed his full level and he'll be he'll be desperate to do that next season because he was a big signing for Yamaha and he'll want for himself to show that he can become one of these guys challenging for a world title again. Now, someone who's actually snuck in the ninth place, Rookie of the Year, Thomas Kier Olsen. Relatively quiet year, maybe in keeping with his personality, but a solid year for Thomas Kier Olsen. A couple of flashes, moments of speed towards the end of the year, Mantov and a couple of the other Grand Prix after that. But overall, relatively quiet, and yet still he's finished ninth in the World Championship. It certainly isn't anything to be ashamed about. That's a, that's a pretty good result overall. You just maybe would have expected more flashes of brilliance, top five speed maybe. Yeah, I think when you look at the championship and see Thomas Kerr-Olson ninth, I mean, you would think, fantastic, that's a really good rookie season. And he should absolutely be happy with ninth uh, uh, as a first go in this class. I mean, I don't think you can expect too much more considering the riders ahead of him. But I think you're right. Although, again, I think you said it one week on one of our podcasts, starts were his issue. He needs to work on those starts because if you're not, if you can't, if you're not there with the top five or top six, you know, you can't see what they're doing. You're not able to replicate what they're doing and therefore you're not able to follow them and you're not able to learn from them. So I think if he gets a start, we did see him get a couple of better starts towards the end and at lay there, which is good to see because then we've seen him being able to, to follow for, for a while at least. But that's been his Achilles heel this year, really, starts and getting out of that gate. But overall, ninth, really good uh, championship result. Just want to see a little bit more flashes of brilliance next year, hopefully. Um, and he, now he has a year under his belt. Uh, I feel like Olsen's one of those riders. He gets better with the more experience he gets in a class. So hopefully um, we can see him battle in the top six times next year. And you look at the championship, and it was Paul Stoda's eighth, Thomas Kyrgios ninth, 60 points between them at the, at the end of the year. You would kind of think they were relatively on a similar level, had similar seasons, but they probably couldn't have had more contrasting seasons. Jonas was probably top five speed a lot of times, a couple of big crashes and then the injury at the end of the year. But speed-wise, he was, you would say, a level ahead of Olsen. But Olsen had that consistency overall and seemed to be slowly adjusting to this class. So it's quite funny. They're, it looks like on paper they had similar seasons, but the reality of it was very different. Yeah, I think you're right. But at the same time, I think you have to expect that maybe because Jonas isn't a rookie and he's had that time to gel with the bigger bike. And, you know, when you get in the MXGP class, you need to know how to set a bike up. I actually interviewed Jonas uh, at the Swart Cross. I think it was his, maybe his rookie year in the class. And he said that was one thing that surprised him about MXGP, you need to know how to set a bike up, and he was working on that. So hopefully, Olsen, with that knowledge, he can take his riding up a level too to maybe to maybe have the same sort of speed Jonas has this year. But again, he's another rider that'll have to have a, a strong winter and come into 2022 fly. I think we've seen with MX2 that Olsen has, you would imagine, mm-hmm. the ability to, to go to that, that next level. As you say, it's probably just experience. That class is very, very intense, especially at the front. So you have to get used to that. And as you just mentioned, 
knowing what to do with the bike set and the bike up as well has all got to come in, come into it. So hopefully Olsen, with all this experience, he does tend to get better year on year, and we'll see that next year. Tenth in the championship, he got into that top ten. He started the year really well. He even had a good day, showed some good speed in America before the World Championship started. And I think Alex Lupino really deserves that top ten in the World Championship. It would have been a bit of a shame for him to have been in it all year and to drop out at the final round. But he, he got through it. And no points in the first moto at the final round probably made him a bit nervous. But still, Lupino, 10th overall. He just lost out to Olsen in the battle for ninth, But 10th overall on a non-factory bike. He has to be really happy with that one because this class, to get that 10th to ride as well as he has all year, really deserved. And you have to place for Alex Lupino. Yeah, phenomenal, really. The highest non-factory bike, 10th in MXGP. Far from easy in this depth of class. It's unbelievable, really. And, you know, he was able to beat the factory guy. So he can be very happy about his season. Um, and I believe he'll be back back to being a factory rider next year with, with better, potentially. Obviously not official yet, but it'll be nice to see him being a factory rider and earning some good money because I think after that year, he deserves it. Yeah, it'll be a quick adjustment for him too with the, the off-season being so short. Ben Watson, 11th of the championship just ahead of, of Brian Bogers. Both these riders, impressive at times during the season. I know Bogers came back, a bit of an injury. It took him a while to get going, but he showed a lot of good speed at times. Watson showed the same. Yes, he maybe couldn't. If he got away at the top five, he could run there for maybe 15 minutes, not the full moto, but you probably wouldn't expect that in his first year. He had some bad moments as well that were a lot worse than he probably wanted to have, but there's definitely a lot of potential with Ben. We're yet to see where he's going to end up for 2022. For me, he was unlucky losing that factory Yamaha ride. But he's definitely got things to work on. But I think he's shown enough speed, enough at ease on the 450 to, to go into next year positive and learn from his experience this year. Yeah, well, the one thing with Watson is some riders, you don't know their weak, their weak areas. With Watson, it's very clear. Slick, hard pack tracks. So in a way, it's good that he knows that that's his weakness because he can go and work on it and hopefully improve. And he, he has a lot of potential as a rider. I mean, 11th as a rookie, that's, that's, as far as I'm concerned, that's a good rookie season. Harsh that he's not going to be a full factory rider, Yamaha rider next year, with uh, Renault expected to move up to MXGP and take his ride. But maybe uh, a move to, if he doesn't get a factory ride, a move to a non-factory ride might bring less pressure. So in a way, obviously he won't have the full factory equipment, but in a way... It might help him not having the pressure to deal with that. And um, as I said, he knows what to work on. So hopefully at the slick hard pack tracks, he can improve. And if he can, who knows, he could be knocking on the door for a top 10 championship in 2022. And on Bram Bodgers, considering he never had a full winter under his belt, I think he don't, he had a very good season, actually. Um Especially the last second half yeah, of the year, he was yeah, really on pace. It, yeah, and it's probably not a surprise that a second half of the year was, you know, was him was at his real level of riding because he didn't have a full winter and going into MXGP without a winter, you know, they're going to blow you away, to be honest. So he, he, he got the grip, grips with it quite quickly, actually, and hopefully he can have a full winter and go into next year and we'll, and we'll see what he can do. Also impressive to me, again, a bit like Jonas, he missed the last few rounds of the year, five rounds of the year, actually, Calvin Vlandren. At times, he was really knocking on the door, not just the top 10, but 
even into that, that top five, if you got to start, got to see, to see the pace of those guys. Obviously, on a non-factory bike, a very good bike on the Gavin Van Venroy Yamaha, but he showed that he probably could be deserving of, of a factory ride as well. London had a really, really good year in terms of his raw speed. The results maybe didn't always reflect that, a couple of crashes or whatever. But still, it's important not to let his absence in the last five rounds make you forget about how good he was previously and the speed that he had. To me, he had, a, had a, almost a, a bit more of a, a breakout year, as it were. Yeah, Flandern's speed, I don't think, reflects his results, even the first half of the season, because he couldn't get that bike out of the gate in quite a lot of the moto, so he was always having to come back through through the field and you know, he was finishing 10th, 11th, 12th. But if he had a got away in the top 10, you know, it wouldn't have been a surprise for me to see him stay in the top 10. Um, and I know he hasn't got a factory bike. I would like to see him with a factory bike. Obviously, we're still waiting to see who Kawasaki will sign. I do believe he's one rider that's on their list, but along with Barami and Watson. If you're Kawasaki, who do you sign between those three? Because oh. I think it's between those three. Or if you want to throw, fire another name out, work away. That's a tough one. <clears throat> it would depend on their salary demands. Well, that's all says all similar salary. <sighs> so similar that to me, they could all do a similar yeah. job. To me, I'm picking Flander and like head and shoulders what? above the, the other two, to be honest. Although, having said that, Borami did impress me um, in some motos when he hopped on the Kawasaki. But for me, the problem with Borami is, you know, he can finish sixth or he can finish 16th. There's no real consistency there. I think um, Flandern's good days will be on par with Bozrami, and his worst days should be better than his. Yeah, look, Bozrami's only getting his feet wet in this yeah, class. Well, this is it, yeah. Ben, if he gets on well with Fevre, I think, so he could have a synergy there as well. It's a very hard choice. I don't think you're necessarily going to go wrong with any of the three, to be honest. It's kind of just roll the dice and see, see which one you get. Philandrin, so you haven't answered my question there. Oh. Not happening. <laughs> How many bikes are you allowed to give Kawasaki? Well, they're only running two, and Fever's one of them. So you have, you have to pick one name between those three. You're struggling oh, here. I am struggling. It's a good job you're not a team boss. <laughs> well, you see, I would like more. more. I would just like to sit down and interview them and understand their character and their will to win as well. <laughs> you know, yeah. there's a lot of things to consider in this, and I don't have all the information at hand. But, well, I don't think any of those three are going to win MXGP, to be honest. Well, no, there's no, there's, <laughs> there's no need to be nasty. Who I would... Oh, <laughs> it's hard to know because Ben's only one year, but Sammy's only five races. Volanderen's the most data on, so you might have the most trust in him after this season being on a non-factory bike. Possibly Volanderen from by a percent over Watson, by a percent over Basrami. You've covered all bases there, so 2% Thanks. between them all. <laughs> yes, thank you. Thank you very much. My Maz is good. <laughs> oh, I don't need to start talking about your Maz. That's not going to help anyone. Right, let's look at this World Championship again. No one needs to do Maths. Jeremy Van Horbeck, 13th overall for, for Beta. Really good, I think. I know he was knocking on the door of the top 10 at times at a couple of tough, tough races in the sand, but they came back pretty strong at the end of the year. And that was in Mantova as well, to boot, which is sad. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> better, better deserve a, a very big shout out, really. Like, this wasn't even a bike a year ago. And for them to work really hard to put a, a competitive bike together for Van Horbeek, who's been a factory rider his whole life, 
you know, he's going to have high expectations. He'll probably demand a lot from them because that's what he's used to. You know, he's used to asking factories what he wants and click of a finger it's there and if he doesn't like that it you know he'll probably ask for something else the, the next day so that's sort of what they're dealing with and i think they worked very well together 13th and mxgp really really good and hopefully they, they can make another step with the bike now over the winter i do know jeremy's been testing the 2022 model for quite some time now so hopefully it will be an upgrade and hopefully we can see it run get plenty more top 10 results next year. The other guys, I need to hurry this up because we're taking ages, but a couple other guys that impressed me, well, quite a few actually. Ferrado, some great rides. I know he had some injury issues that hindered his speed at the start and the end of the year, but a couple of top 10s whenever he got the start. So I think he's shown good potential if he can get his health and fitness sorted out. Benoit Pacharel missed the first half of the season, came back and showed he can run top 10. So I'm, I'm pleased on a personal level for him because he's had a very tough couple of years. Dylan Wright really impressed me. Showed he, I know he got a ninth to the tenth, but to jump into MXGP and to be pretty much 10 to 15 every round at the end of the year. I think he deserves a shot at the World Championship next year. Matthias Bussarame, we just talked about him actually. I thought he was pretty good. Not a lot of prep time in that 450. When he got away, he showed good speed, probably in around that top 10 level. And maybe the most impressive was Ruben Fernandez jumping up from MX2, even less time than, than Bersrami to prepare. I think it also shows how good that Honda is, but he was well into the top 10 on, on raw speed in those last two rounds, even give Hurlings a bit of a run for his money for a couple of laps in the penultimate race. Yeah, and he might have, been the, the, might have been the most impressive. You wonder now if there's going to be talks that he's actually just going to move straight up to MXGP next year or if they're going to keep him to, to show off this this new MX2 machine next well, year I'm for glad, 2022. I'm glad you mentioned that because there has been whispers that he will yeah. be racing MXGP next year. What would Not you so- do if you were Honda? Would you move him up early a year or would you keep him in MX2? I'll go first to give you thinking time. Um, if it was me, I don't think there's any real need to rush and this new MX2 Honda, it seems like they're getting this base that Jet Lawrence had. So for me, Livia Lanchula has done a very good job in Honda and MX2. If it was me, I would keep him in MX2 one more year with the view to move him up to MXGP in 2023. Now, there's also been rumours Harap has tested that bike. Will he sign or will he go to Dixon? That remains to be seen. If, if I was Honda, I would sign Harap and I would partner him with Fernandez because I feel like Livia Lanchula has done a very good job, and I think she deserves two good riders in the MX2 World Championship, and then at the end of 2022, um, promote Ruben and Emma into the MXGP team, and that's what I would do, but I'm not Honda. What would you do? I like how you asked me a question and then answered it yourself. Yeah, um, well, I know you don't like being put <laughs> under pressure, so I answered it to bide you a bit of time there. It depends how, much, how well Mitch Evans is riding. Let's not forget about him. He was fantastic last year. Wrist injury kept him out all year. If he's struggling for pace or needs a couple of months before he's he's ready to go, maybe bring Ruben into the team as well because he's shown he has the pace. If you think Evans can come back and do what he did in the first season and maybe even better, it would probably give Ruben the another year in MX2 to showcase this bike. Also, who have they got coming through? You mentioned Harrop there. He could be good. But have they got a, another rider who they think they could do a similar job to what Ruben did and even better? That would also be dependent on it. But I certainly wouldn't rule him out 
I don't think it's a bad idea if he does move direct to it next season because he showed so much speed. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see what the decision to do make. Uh, with Mitch Evans, I, I think he's only had two or three weeks left on the bike. But, you know, this MXGP team is built around Tim Geyser. Whenever Evans got injured this year, Honda never even filled him in until the last couple of rounds. I'm a no way to have done that. So are they all that concerned when it comes to a second rider? Obviously, the rate Ruben, and Ruben will be haunted no matter what, but if they're putting him MXGP, it's probably because they feel that the bike suits him better. But will he get as good results in MXGP as he will in MX2? Difficult one. He had five podiums in MX2 this year. I feel like with this new Honda, he could maybe have more podiums than that in MX2 next year. So whatever, they've got a decision to make anyway, whatever way you look at it. Yeah, for him, you would imagine he's more chance of a podium and race wins in MX2. And if that's going to be his last year, for Honda, it's probably a relatively difficult decision because you're thinking of the marketing of the MX2 machine on the level Ruben can take that. But you probably don't want Tim in a situation, depending again, depending on how much Evans is, is riding and, and feeling with his risk, where he's kind of a one-man band on that team. You, you want somebody, Ruben Fernandez, already proven to be an ideal teammate in terms of speed and he's probably only going to get quicker from there so it's slightly tricky for Honda but it's probably a good option either way really as long as they can get someone else competitive in MX2 to step into Ruben's place but also Lorenzo Lucercio actually impressed me as well I know he ended up injured from his nation so was struggling a bit at the end but he had some good motos motos too but all in all we also have to say Sean Simpson and Kevin Stribe is pretty sad to see them leave the paddock as well as, as Caroli. A bit of an end of an era there. Two really nice guys, if anyone's ever ever spoke to them. Very genuine and obviously very, very good riders. Stribus, at one point, I thought he was destined to be world champion. It never quite worked out for him, but he was an extremely talented rider uh, in his late teens and, and early 20s. He looked like he was going to be the, the next Belgian superstar. Injuries and that year with Kawasaki and one thing and another, he never maybe quite got back to that, but he was still a very competitive rider. He'd still win and podium on his day. And he came through those struggles to, to have a long and ultimately successful career as well as the Motocross of Nations. Sean Simpson as well got on the podium in the Motocross of Nations and won Grand Prix. A long journey for him as well. And Sean always seemed to almost enjoy the freedom of a non-factory ride more than a factory ride at times. So that was quite an interesting situation for him and an observation from the outside. Most people always want a factory ride, but Sean did just as well at times, even better with the freedom just to do his own thing. Yeah, the MXGP paddock won't be the same without Stribus, Crowley and Simpson. Has to be said. Very sad to see them go, but you know, all good things come to an end. And just on Simpson, a lot of our listeners won't know, but at 16 years old, he was actually racing the Ulster Championships. If you'd have told me back then he'd finish, go on to finish fourth in the world and have an amazing GP career, win GPs, I don't think I would have believed you to tell you the truth. So that just gives, that just shows you the development uh, he had in his career. and It was really great to see um, and all the best to those guys for the future as well. And quite, quite interesting, interesting that Simpson said his biggest rival was actually Kevin Stribus throughout his career because they're of a, in a similar age and of course, they bought off for a British Championship in the past as well. So I, I never really realised that was a rivalry, but there you go. Yeah, and Simpson obviously was made an Irish motocross without his grinding battle and Philip McCulloch and Tommy Merton and Adam Lyons and 
Martin Barr and Wayne Garrett, he probably would never have won Grand Prix. <laughs> that's where he learned his trait that's it yeah, and also shout out to Roger McGee because Roger in seriousness he gave Sean that, that platform Sean came off the Chambers KTM where he showed a lot of promise and then went to the was it Team Lizard Honda at that time for Roger mm. then Kawasaki with Roger and KTM so credit to Roger for, for getting that uh, rider's career on the upward trend and from there Sean, Sean did wonderful things but just on the general world championship, MXGP, a few of the American journalists have been on one hand saying it's it's the premier championship for, for motocross, but on the other hand also struggling to acknowledge that it's actually a world a proper world championship, which I think is quite disrespectful to, to the series, especially since the name of it is literally World Championship and it's run by the FIM. They made the comparison that it's not F1, it's not MotoGP, and that they are real world championships. But in the US, you have Supercross, and riders go there to race Supercross. They're not going there to race motocross. So the premier series in the world is for motocross is the MXGP World Championship. It has riders who specialize in that, who race all year in different countries on the biggest variety of tracks. Whereas in America, while the motocross championships are really good, most of the riders prioritize Supercross. So it's hard to see any other championship that is actually the premier championship. It is the MXGP World Championship. And I think American need to start recognizing as, recognizing it as that and not calling it Europe as if it's a, a rival national championship that's kind of the same thing as the US. The World Championship, for me, has the prestige. It is the MotoGP, the Formula One of motocross, and it needs to be treated like that for me. And also, we'll come to MX2 as well. A lot of, some of the American journalists also saying that the 250 class in America is better than the MX2 World Championship. I'm not quite sure where that confidence is coming from, considering Jet Lawrence, Hunter Lawrence came third, and both of them came from Australia via Europe. So that doesn't make sense as evidence. And also, this under-23 rule seems to just almost annoy people and make people think it isn't that good because everybody's under-23, but weren't the top three in America under 23 as well. And whenever you look down the list, we'll come on to MX2 here now, whenever you look down the list of these riders, Tom Vial, world champion Maxime Renault, Yago Gertz, Guadagnini, Hoffer, Kai DeWolf, Harup, Gifting, Langenfelder, the level is extremely high in MX2 and it's, it's clearly underrated for me. These guys are really good. They're obviously really fast in America as well, but a Jet Lawrence-Tom Vial battle would be fantastic to see. We already saw Hunter in MX2, and he was a top rider, and he's a top rider in America. So I don't see where this higher level in America is really coming from, do you? Look, Americans don't rate it MX2 until it's in America, and then it's the best thing since sliced bread. That's all I'll say on it. If, if Maxime Renault was to go to America next year, it'd be the best thing ever. Um, oh, and um, it's quite sad that the, MX, the, the, the look at MX2 and they always try and put it down. But, I mean, how many riders came from MX2 to actually dominate in America? Ken Roxon did, Marvin Muskin did, Dylan Fernandes did. And, uh, by the way, by the, yeah, and he couldn't beat Jeffrey Hurlings in MX2. Yeah. I think he beat him in a couple of GPs. So I think that says it all, really. I think That's... Americans like to say this and the other, but I think they know what they're doing at the same time. But anyway, it's kind MX2 of weird is fantastic. To, it's kind of weird to discredit a class where your 450 motocross champion came from. And Ken Roxton, who's won it in the past, came from. And Marvin Muscon, who's won MX2 in the past, came from. And Hunter Lawrence came from. It, it makes no sense to me that you can even try and justify that. Yes, Justin Cooper, Austin Faulkner, when he's fit and 
a lot of other riders, Jeremy Martin's extremely fast as well, but definitively say as a fact that the 250 class in America is superior to MX2 to me doesn't make sense, especially whenever you have Guadagnini, DeWolf, Beniston, and another load of really young riders, fast riders coming through from MX2. The development system works for MX2, and the riders all then go on to MXGP. So criticizing that to then say, oh, they're suddenly found speed in the MXGP class doesn't really make sense. Tim Geyser, Roman Favre, Jeffrey Hurlings all came from MX2 as well, as most of them do. So it's actually feeding. The MX2 class is feeding the champions for the U.S. Nationals, or at least race winners, champion as it was this year, the MX2 250 class in America, and the MXGP class. That's not bad for a class that isn't as good as the 250 Nationals. Absolutely. And the other thing I would say is it's the tracks they're riding. They're riding a lot of versatile tracks. You know, they can ride sand, they can ride hard pack, they can ride pretty much any, any motocross condition. And that's what makes these guys so good in America and when it comes to outdoors. The tracks are all pretty similar, bar a couple, and it means they're not as versatile. So if you put them on a track like Arco de Trento, for example, you know, it's gonna you know, they're not used to like that type of going. So it takes them a while to adjust. I mean, who in, in the two fifty class in America, who is under twenty under twenty three that could could come over and beat Maxime Renault? Le- Levi Kitchen, yeah. I don't think so. Maybe give just two or three years. Cooper and a Faulkner, maybe. Well, Faulkner, maybe. Coop, well, Cooper's too old. Cooper's too four. old. I'm talking under 23. Oh, like yeah. Cooper's too old. Faulkner, I think he... Would he make the cut for under 23? Probably. Well, he was eight, yeah, well, he'd he's, be, he wouldn't be far off the cut now, probably. He's sort of getting yeah, to that. Yeah, he'd so be about the only one that could come over and challenge, but... I mean, to beat Maxime Renault and run with Iago Gertz and Tom Vial over a whole season in MX2. Good luck. Yeah, you're you're looking at Jet Lawrence, really, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, but yeah, who's a, who's an Aussie? Yeah, he's definitely <laughs> pretty special. But... The, and learned to straight in the GP paddock. Exactly, and he's admitted that the tracks that he rode on in, in quotation marks Europe have really helped his development as well. Right, let's get to MX2 and the, the underrated class. Maxime Renault won it. And he deserved to win it. I know Tom Vial had that injury, which was he didn't deserve that at all. But when Renault got the opportunity, he was fast anyway. Vial had that wee edge. But when Vial came back, Renault, I think, made a point to show that he could run with Vial and beat him at times as well. So there was less sort of doubters on, on his championship parade. But Renault still had to do it. He still had to go out and perform each moto. Whether bad rides, good rides, he had to take the highs and the lows and make the best of every situation. And he did that. And his speed was fantastic. His mental composure was brilliant. And he he was the dominant rider, as it turned out, by the end of the season, aside from a flurry from Vial whenever he came back. But then they had that clash. Just when Vial was starting to think he had a chance at the championship again at uh, at Arco, and that brought everything back to, to Maxime Renault for the end of the season. And well done to him. And also Yamaha to go 1-2. Kibbe Yamaha in a class that has been dominated by KTM. Really good for them, really good for Marnik Bavortz, who is, is take, leaving his role with that team to, to help his son. But really, really nice for them. There's been a lot of effort put into that. And to go one to Iago won his, the first GP of his year at the end of the season. It was pretty much a perfect year for Kimi Yamaha. Yeah, perfect way for Marnik Bavortz to buy out too. One, two in the championship. It's not going to get any better than that, literally. So, um, yeah, what I would say on Maxime Renault, absolutely fantastic season. You know, at the end of last season, I was saying 
don't underestimate this guy. He can challenge for this championship. But did I even expect him to be this good? Absolutely not. He was phenomenal this year. The level, he completely went up a level with his riding. Um, just no weakness, really. Good at every track. Mentally strong. Anytime he got a bad start, no problem. He was able to charge through the pack. Really, really, really impressive. Rumors are he's going to MXGP next year. I'm greedy and a little bit disappointed because I would have loved to see him, Vial, and Gertz really go at it next year. You know, Vial got had his injury this year. Gertz uh, came into the season with his ankle in issue, and then everything seemed to go against him as well. So it would have been nice for for all three to have another go in 2022. But Maxime Renault can't take anything away from that. He thoroughly deserved it this year. And even if Vial and Gertz didn't have their issues, the way with Renault was riding, it wouldn't have surprised me if he won it anyway. He was that good. Yeah, I think you can't really argue with that. He, he just delivered on every aspect, as you said. His, his consistency over every different track as well was, was really impressive. He's good in the sand, good in the hard pack. He even shown he could come through the pack as well at times where he didn't get the best start. He had a couple of kind of wolf sort of crossed across the front of him and put him down, and he still come back from that as well. So everything that was thrown at him, including that incident with with Tom Vial, he came out on top, and he, he never seemed to to lose the plot mentally or anything. So really impressive for him, and I'm actually really intrigued to see how well he'll go on the 450 next year if that's what he definitely does. Especially, I think, with Ruben's performance on the 450 at the end of last year, that's maybe a quite a high bar for for a no to to ride to. But he's proven he was quicker than Ruben for most of the season. Although Ruben was very fast at the start of the year as well, so that maybe helps Renault as well to look at that and go, I can be very competitive straight away in MXGP, and he's going to be on a good team with two fast teammates. Yeah, the only thing I would say is though, there's a difference between hopping and MXGP. And having one good race or a couple of good races, then doing it over a season. So oh, I wouldn't look too much to Fernandez's results. Obviously, he he wasn't under any pressure either. You know, his championship, his MX2 championship was done. He was just going in there to have fun. With Renault, it's a little bit different, as we've seen with Watson, who had a reasonably good year, and he's he's now out at Yamaha. So even though he's a rookie. With the way the circumstances are, he's going to need results to keep that ride. So hopefully he can get the good results. But, you know, I think he'll be a consistent top 10 guy. I think that's where he'll be. Although he he, he does seem very confident that he suits the 450. I think long term, I can see him having an MXGP career similar to Paul on. But in terms of his rookie year, it's really hard to know what to expect in this class because it's so strong. So it, it will be interesting, but there's definitely no mistake about it. The guy has serious speed. Yeah, he's uh, really impressive, and he's been he's gradually built up to this level. He's had injuries. He's had building years. Last year, I think, was really good for him in terms of he kept getting speed. He kept showing he was in that top three mix, getting on the podium, starting to get wins, and then he got that factory bike, and then immediately he was right on the level that he needed to be to be a world champion. Yago Gertz, on the other hand, he's been hovering around there. This year was supposed to be the year he was really, really going to go for it with last year's experience. Unfortunately for Yago, it didn't work out with an early season injury. And then it looked like he was starting to come back to form and then a couple of crashes. And then he eventually crashed. He literally said he, he got angry with himself. And from then on, I think it was about five rounds to go, four rounds to go. 
from then his performance has really stepped up to the Iago Gertz we really expected. He got the win at the end of the year. Last two in Mantova, he was possibly the, the best guy there. Second in the championship again, although this time he was never really the, the challenge to Maxime Renault. He salvaged the cha- he salvaged the season at the end of the year that looked very difficult for him halfway through. Yeah, it's quite similar to Sure's season, really. Had a lot go against him. And Sure ended up fourth in MXGP and Gertz ended up second in MX2. So considering everything that went against him, on paper, not not bad seasons in the end. But obviously, you know, Yago wants this MX2 World Championship title, so he's going to be bitterly disappointed about his season. The good thing is he ended on a high note. He was able to ride like the Yago Gertz from last year, so that's the positive. He needs to focus on that heading into 2022 and just come out swinging at the start of next year, really, and hopefully uh, he can come into the season 100% healthy because it's, it's very difficult when you come into the season injured because it, sometimes it can just be a domino effect and I think that's what we've seen with Gertz but next year you know he's going to be expected to deliver this title for Yamaha especially if Maxime Renault does move up so it's do or die for Yago next year as far as I'm concerned will he sink or will he swim and Tom Vial I don't think he has a lot to worry about he won a lot of motors when he came back from injury at one point he looked like he was the dominant rider again his technique style talent all fantastic he might even have learned a wee bit at the end of the season because you don't rarely see him. You rarely see him make mistakes. He made that mistake with Renault whenever he, he admitted he thought he maybe had a chance at the title again, and he was the one that actually made the mistake. So that, in some ways, might actually help him in his career going forward. But if you're Tom Vial, I don't think, aside from the disappointment of not winning, and as well as how the original injury occurred after round one, which he completely dominated, career-wise, I think. It's fine. You just reset. You've shown how good you are still this year. You've shown you can go back from injury and win. Just go for your second title next year, basically. Yeah, Vial and MX2 kind of reminds me of Prado and MXGP. You know, around that first corner, it's probably going to be Vial. Not quite to the level of Prado, but more often than not, Vial or will get the whole shot, and that makes life a lot easier. And you're able to dictate the speed at the front end. And he's very, very good at doing that. He's good at controlling the lead at the front. So going into next year, he's going to be the the title favourite. But then that brings pressure again. I feel like he's, he has no issues riding with pressure. And like you said, he very rarely makes mistakes. But, you know, it's after the injury this year, he was able to ride completely free, really, because there was never really any moment where you thought, Flip, he's going to win this championship apart from maybe one lap. <laughs> but um, he was able to ride completely lap, yeah. free going into next year. You know, he's, he's going to be thinking about the championship again, so it'll be interesting to see how he can cope with that mentally. But going into 2022, you would think it's going to be maybe similar to what 2020 was, the Gertz and Vial show, and then who can surprise and who can who can do a Maxime Renault, really? And can anyone, or will it be between those two? It's going to be fascinating. There's certainly a lot of young talent in there. Yeah, and first of those, that young talent coming through is Matteo Guadagnini. Started the season fantastic, winning motos. The end of the season tailed off slightly, actually, probably after that Motocross of Nations win. But credit to him, he, he got the train back on the road for the last three motos. Two-fifths on a, a key third in the last moto of the championship to secure fourth, just ahead of Jed Beaton, who himself probably didn't start as strong as he wanted at the, at the start of the year. 
but in, we were in contrast to go out and he came on strong at the end of the year and, and what was his last season in MX2. So I think he can be relatively happy with fifth overall. But Guadagnini is certainly the standout rookie. And as we talked about earlier, he's going to have a, probably a bit more focus from Caroli, who isn't going to be riding a full world championship anymore. He has a lot of experience now winning races, having a wee bit of a struggle at the end of the year. Beniston was maybe a wee bit similar. It shows, I guess, just how difficult it is to keep your level so high for a long championship and so many motos against such tough competition. Yeah, and also I think it's pretty normal for a rookie to have a dip at some point of the season because coming up from EMX 250, they don't have as many rounds. I mean, you're going from, is it eight or nine? 10 max to 20 rounds so you need a year to experience that before you know how to deal with it really and how to deal with your body so he's had a year now and what a year it was fourth in the world championship i don't think too many people would have thought he'd do that good coming into the season um you know he's won at this class now i think he'll win gps next year i really do how many remains to be seen but I certainly could see him standing on the top step five or six times anyway if he keeps continuing to develop like he, he has done. And if he can take another step like he did coming into this season, he could be right up there. Yeah, I think he's a guy you would expect to take the step up. But also Rene Hoffer, he's taken a big step this year as well. Maybe at the end of the year was actually slightly ahead of Guadagnini at times. He's got his first win at times. I think he thought he was Tom Vial after he got that first win because he was really went to the next level. To me, Hoffer could be a big threat next year. His starts are usually pretty good as well. Maybe not quite as consistent as Tom Vial, but the speed, we saw him clash well and go down pretty hard with, with Iago Gertz at the end of the year there. But he was consistently getting in amongst those riders. He knows he can win now. And he's consistently shown, shown speed, even if he's had to come from the back a wee bit. To me, next year's a big year for Hoffer because he could get himself into that top three battle for the championship. I actually think Rene Hoffer's the dark horse, to be honest with you. Uh, I really do. Um, like you touched on there, his starts have been good this year. And actually, that's been one of his weaknesses throughout his career. And EMX 125 and EMX 250, his starts weren't actually good. So it's good that he's been able to work on those. It certainly makes life a lot easier. And he was very, very strong at the end of this season. And he reminds me of a young Paul's Jonas. And he's just got such a great style. Mm-hmm. He's very, very smooth. So I think the way he rides helps him. Maybe towards the end of this year, he was actually, you could maybe tell he was maybe more on the limit. But, um, you know, he reaped the rewards. He was fantastic at the end of this year. Maybe a few too many crashes towards the end of the year. But overall, really, really good speed. And I think he'll be the one to watch going into 2022. I really do. Yeah, if you're going to learn learn the pace of the leaders, the end of this year was the year to do it because you're getting the confidence you can do it and you're probably finding your limits and getting used to that intensity as well when you're getting those consistent good starts. Another rider who expect a big jump from is Kai DeWolf. He mentioned he just wanted to be top 15 this year. Well, he exceeded those expectations. Amoto went seventh overall. His down races weren't that down, really. They were just kind of inside the top 10, which really isn't that bad, especially for a Dutch kid still getting his level back in hard pack, which I think throughout the year, you could see definite improvement there. The sand speed certainly isn't an issue. With another couple of months under his belt, practicing and, and knowing now what a full World Championship year takes, 
I expect him to be a big top five contender. And I think he might even take the biggest leap of everyone next year. Yeah, when it comes to raw talent, this guy might genuinely be the most talented rider in the class. A big statement, I know, but we forget that this kid was riding in 85 three seasons ago. The improvement well, steps. 16, yeah, the improvement and the big steps he's made, very, very, very impressive. And I fully expect him to take another jump over the winter. Sand, we know he can ride. I mean, he'll, he'll probably win races in the sand as long as he can get out of the gate. It's just all about his hard pack riding. And his hard pack riding is already at a pretty good level for somebody of that age. You know, he was comfortably in the top 10 by the end of the season in hard pack, battling for top five. So, yeah, the the world is his oyster as far as I'm concerned. He can he can pretty much achieve whatever he wants to in this sport. He's that talented if he can just stay away from injuries and keep developing and not... Uh, you know, going into next year, he might have a bit of pressure, so he needs to deal with that. But I feel like he'll do that, no problem. Yeah, I think he is definitely the next biggest talent, as you mentioned, coming through. And that's why I think his progression is going to be so rapid, because he's progressed so quickly over the last three years. You almost expect, if it isn't too much, that he's just going to make another leap again, even though this is the, the World Championship. But the Wolf, you can see when he rides the bike, the control of the bike he has. Even in Mantova there, he was wheeling over stuff just, just at will. And he seems to be able to find lines that other people don't see as well and manipulate the bike in any way he wants, really. So bike control and talent isn't there. Basically, all we're waiting for DeWolf, probably a little bit of strength because he's so young and experienced. And only time's going to get him that. But everything else is there by far. Absolutely. So, so much talent. Can we talk about his teammate next uh, his teammate for next year, next place, Ron van der Moestijk. What are we thinking? Crunch time? I think you wrote a little article on that, didn't you? If anyone yeah, wants I to did. go back and read. I um, did, I did. Yes, it's a... Rowan again because of his injury. It's easy almost to, to forget him out of this class, but at the start of the year, he was actually going really well. He was consistently up there. I know we had talked about the next stage then as to win the motors because he sort of positioned himself well early in the championship. That didn't quite happen and he had the injury and different things but I think when you get on to this Husky he's seen what the Wolf is able to do and the Wolf he probably won't want the Wolf beating him really because the Wolf's the younger rider so Rowan should have the bike he's going to be basically on a different coloured bike that Tom Vial is going to be riding so there, there can't be any excuses there he, as you say crunch time he, he has to deliver on what he thinks he's capable of doing and I think his talent's very high you would expect him to be going for at least a top three in this championship but we're just talking about all these young riders coming up. Hoffer's taking a step. The Wolves already really good. Beniston was fantastic at the start of the year, dropped off a little bit and then had that injury. But again, he's a year under his belt now and you expect him to be better next year. And speed-wise, he already had it. So Rowan has kind of got these guys on his heels. He's got one of them in his, in his team. So he's going to have to hit the ground running, I think, next year. Yeah, absolutely. The, the big thing for me with Rowan is, is what are his starts going to be like in this Husqvarna? That FNH Kawasaki, it's a very good team and it is a good bike, but getting it out of the gate, the way I look at it, is hard work. Whether that's the bike or it's the rider himself, we're about to find out. Obviously, if he can't get starts with the Husqvarna next year, it's something that is on the rider. But uh, it's going to be fascinating. I think um, people don't realize how talented Ron van der Moestijk is. He's bags of talent. But, um, I mean, time's counting down he's got two years left in this class and by now I would have thought that he might have been a championship contender 
obviously this year he could have been, but the injury happened and it ruined his season pretty much. But uh, he, he positioned himself nicely. I can't wait to see what he's going to do in the Husky. The only thing that slightly concerns me is if the results aren't going his way and Kaido Wolf does beat him regularly, that's going to be hard for him to take. So it's going to be fascinating to watch, but I rate him very highly. And if he can get out of this gate, I don't think he'll be too far away because he has the speed. Well, Ira, it's funny because we're talking to Wolf doing incredible things at his age, but I remember Van de Moustak at 15, 16 and 17. He was the really talented, really young Dutch rider capable of showing a lot of speed in, in MX2. And now it doesn't seem that long ago, and now it's almost like his time's running out to deliver and it's all about Kai De Wolf. You know, th- things move very fast, and he's on a obviously a very good team for next season. He should have the bike, so it's it's really up to him to deliver on his talent. And obviously, that's not easy because it's almost like the next generation is trying to overtake him. Exactly, exactly. But it's going to be fascinating. I can't wait to see what he can do in the Husqvarna. I really can't. It's going to going to be fascinating. I think two Dutchies underneath that awning as well could get interesting because they'll be battling for you would think the MX2 Dutch Nation squad Okay so Simon we spoke about Ruben Fernandez earlier ninth although again he had injuries and didn't ride the last couple of rounds so that kind of maybe isn't a total reflection of, of his season he was a championship contender early we're not quite sure now whether he's going to stay MX2 or jump to MXGP but you would imagine with the speed he showed on the bike this year with this new Honda even in stock form, people are saying the engine's a lot more competitive. So you imagine a factory team getting a hold of that. He could be on the next level in terms of his, his starts and speed again next year if he stays. Ninth for him, but we know the speed he has. Simon Langenfelder, 10th overall. Maybe slightly less spectacular from the German than I was expecting this year. He had some moments where he got the starts. Other times it looked like he had the pace at the start, but the intensity would maybe rattle him. People would maybe rough him about a bit, put a couple of hard passes on him, and suddenly he's third, fourth, and then three laps later he's maybe down to seventh, such as the intensity. So there's, I think there's things to work on for Simon, but also I think he does have talent that can be worked with. So I think the potential is there. And I would say Mikhail Harrop, 11th, just 10 points behind. He's probably in the same boat, but you mentioned the FNH Kawasaki. We didn't see Harrop at the front a lot off the gate, so... If he can get on that Honda, as you mentioned, or Dixon Kawasaki is also pretty fast usually. That's what I think these, he needs the starts and Lagenfelder probably just needs a wee bit more experience. Yeah, with Lagenfelder, I think he started the season really well and I think he actually ended the season really well. But we were talking about dips earlier and his dips seemed to come mid-season. But the positive for him was that he was able to ride strong at the end of the season and regroup after that dip. I think 10th is pretty much spot on for him. Um, but you know he's going to be with the Ducati squad next year we believe on the gas gas and if there's one thing that the Ducatis can do it's work with young talent and analyse their weaknesses and improve on them so don't be too surprised if he makes a really big step up next year and also he's going to have Antonio Crowley in his corner that can only be a, a benefit as well Mikael Harap came into the season with quite a lot of expectations I would say the start of the season just did not go according to plan for the amount of talent the kid has. But the good thing is, at around the halfway point in the season, he started to find, go up the gears and find a better level. And he, he ended the season really strongly in Italy. So I'm excited to see what he can do for next year. He's another one that has bags of talent. Um, um, so far in his MX2 career, he hasn't fully delivered on that. Bars podium at Matterley Basin. So... It'll be interesting to see what he can do. Here's a question for you. 
Oh. Um, who do you think is a rider to? Who do you think is a rider to keep an eye on going into twenty twenty two that might surprise the most next year? For me, it's Harrop. I think because I feel like if he can find the consistency and the ingredients to unlock his full potential, I feel like he can be battling for top fives on a regular basis. What's your criteria for surprising? Um, just that um, somebody might not expect to be top five or top ten that you think will be mm. on, a, on a regular basis. You know, a lot of people might not think that about her up, but I think he, he has the tools to get consistent top fives, and I feel like he can do it. Tempted to say Everts. Mm, yeah, I don't think that would surprise now, a lot of people, though, because he's a well-known name. Of, well, yeah, top but five would surprise him, yeah. First year in the class. Like, obviously, you'd be, you'd probably be looking at the top ten, but if he got top five... It w- I wouldn't be massively surprised. I'd be slightly surprised, but I would put him ahead of Harrop because I think, to me, Harrop's capable of that. This year is almost a, a step back in one way in terms of maybe that blazing raw speed, but in some ways two steps forward because he got that full season under his belt with no major injuries, and he actually got his best Moto result of the year at the last round with a fourth place in Moto 1 when he actually did get away well. So if you give him that experience of the season... You give him that wee bit of extra bit of speed on a, we'll see where he goes next year. But if he can get out out the gate, then yeah, I think he's definitely capable of that top five. I'm always still tempted to put in Conrad Muse, 16th overall in the championship. But his speed, as we saw it in Mantova, a wee bit like Harrop, this almost saved their best round of the year for the last round. He certainly has top five speed as well. Well, it's uh, next year who's Conrad Muse has to deliver. Simple as that. No more excuses because if he doesn't, he's not going to get an MXCP right. That's for certain. But yeah, it's do or die time for him. I honestly don't know what to expect from Conrad Muse anymore, to be honest. Here's a rider for you. Well, well, actually, before we get to him, Wilson Todd, 12th overall in the championship. But I actually was really impressed with him this year. Consistent results. And at the end, he was just getting faster and faster. He actually had a fourth as well at, towards the end of the season, three rounds to go. I'm a bit disappointed for him that he's actually aged out. He's almost one of those... We talk about that age rule, you would kind of like to say 25 at some points. He's maybe one of the guys that ends up slipping through the net, not because he's not a great rider. He, he's proven to be a great rider and very quick at learning tracks and learning competition at the World Championship level. But he probably could have had a more of a chance of getting a good MXGP ride if he had another year or two in this class to really show his stuff. Because don't forget, he got hurt early last year. So this was really his first full season. By the end of the year, he was absolutely flying. 12th overall... Yeah. Is good, but probably his speed was back was up into that top ten at the end of the year regularly. Yeah, top Wilson had a year. Wilson had a really good year. The problem is when you're in your last year of your MX2 World Championship, you know you need to be getting podiums or wins to get an MXGP ride. So I think Wilson missed a trick by not actually coming to Europe earlier. That was his um, downfall, let's say. But I think you're right. If uh, I I personally wanted to be an under twenty five age rule and that would have given him an, an extra two years in the class. And who knows, you know, he, he, with with a full season behind him, he could have really progressed next year. I was actually reading an interview he'd done with, I think it was Moto Online on Aussie site, and he, he didn't seem happy whatsoever with the bike. I always thought Dixon had a very fast bike, but he didn't seem too content with it. So considering he wasn't too happy with his equipment and, and you know, showed regular top 10 speed, I think it was a very good season for him. It's just a shame he's going back to Australia now. But what I would say is, as soon as there's injuries in MXGP, I would be looking at him 
him as a fill-in rider if I was a, in a factory team. Yeah, that's a good point. Actually, definitely, he's got the skills and the ability. It's, it's he's just kind of slipped through the net. It's probably a question of timing with the injury, as you say, coming over later and not really getting the uh, time to settle and really build an MX two because he's he's had to to move out. Isaac Gifting. Up and down year, I'm sure he was hoping for more being on, on the factory gas gas, but 13th overall. He's sending for Roger McGee's Hitachi KTM powered by Milwaukee next year, which for me is probably a, a good spot for him. It takes the pressure off of a factory ride, but it's a good bike. that's capable of getting results if he's on form. Yeah, with Isaac, he came into the season with a knee injury. I think it happened the week before round one. And I think it was worse than a lot of people think, I think. So... You know, at ruined the start of his season. I think he started to feel a lot better from about the halfway point. And if he gets away, he has got speed. But he's one of these riders, something always seems to happen him on the first lap, whether it's a crash or a bike issue or somebody hitting into him or something like that. If he can avoid that sort of drama in the first lap and get away, I think he has speed to be at least a, a consistent top 10 rider. Like you say, it's, it's good that he signed with Hitachi because he's got a two-year deal there, so he doesn't need to worry about the future now. That's all secure, so he can just focus on his riding now for the for the last two years in his MX2 career. And Yeah, if he can get away and avoid um, chaos, I, th- I think he can do well. Andrea Adamo, for me, was a really impressive rider this year. He actually rode really well at the end of the season as well. Seemed to continue to build his speed and confidence as the season went on. 14th overall, and probably exceeded my expectations, to be honest. Really good season for the Italian. Really good season. I mean, considering he missed a whole year of racing last year after getting injured at Falkensward, where he got the EMX 250 podium. So he ho- he missed a whole year there. And then, you know, he's making a big jump up to MX2. This is a big jump, considering you've only raced a couple of EMX 250 races. And, um, yeah, I mean... It's, you know, it's, it's 14th in the championship and it might not sound that great, but the consistency he's he shown, he was pretty much 10 to 15 every single week, but he needed probably a few more top 10 results, do you know, to, 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 to get a better championship position. But in terms of consistency, he can be very happy. And yeah, I think he, he would have turned a lot of heads this year, I feel. I think it's good that he's staying where he is, the SM Action Gas Gas team for 2022. Uh, and he's got a year under his belt now, so it'll be interesting to see if he can um, take a take it up a level with his riding going into next year now. Just a couple of other riders I want to talk about before we wrap this up. Brian Sue, been missing for a couple of years, sort of went the Supercross route, obviously former world and European champion on a 1-2-5, and an 80, I think. Very, very successful rider in the youth ranks. Was supposed to be one of the next big things. You would imagine at this point in his career, he was supposed to be going for world titles. But he came back in for the last five rounds and was very, very competitive in around that kind of eighth to the twelfth level of speed, battling away, not on a factory bike. So I was very actually impressed with how quickly he gained back that world championship rhythm. He's been out of motocross for a long time. And also Gianluca Facchetti, he moved on to the KTM and his results and speed certainly improved. So he's been knocking on the door for a while. He's kind of shown flashes, great style, but the results have never really been there. This was maybe the first time he really started to show results on paper to match the kind of flash he has on the bike. Yeah, absolutely. Um, decent. Uh, you know, he, he, I don't think he was too happy at the Aston Motor Honda team, so he decided to jump ship to the, the KTM Italian team. Uh, their names escape me. 
but yeah, back on a KTM anyway, and he, he certainly looked a lot more comfortable. So a good, a, a, a promising signs for him. Let's say building for the future. Um, one rider I would like to touch on actually, he had a, a very tough season with injury mostly, but Stephen Rubini. Yeah. Injuries just was very, very tough for him this year. He started with one and then he ended with one. And I'm not sure he was ever riding 100%, to be honest with you. So he's going into the last year of his MX2 World Championship career next year. Hopefully he can get a winter under his belt because this guy has talent and he's especially very good in hard pack. So it'll be interesting to see what he can do. And just on Brian Sue, oh, what a talent. I mean, I interviewed him at the Belfast Arena Cross two or three years ago now and he just called motocross born and he wants to make his career in supercross oh i really wish he stuck at motocross because what a talent he is i mean if he was riding motocross every week since then god knows what he could have achieved because he certainly hasn't got a lack of talent but you know that's it's his career and his decisions and the good news is for him i do think he is going to be racing ams supercross at least some rounds next year Better late than never. He probably should have been doing this three years ago if that's the route he wanted to go down. But at least he's going to get a, an opportunity to show what he can do in American next year, hopefully. Yeah, he looks really like Alessio Coyote on the bike. If anyone remembers him, they'll know. Very short in stature, very technical and very fast. So he obviously has all the skills to be very good at Supercross. He'll probably open some eyes in America. It's just the whoops, those big whoops and short stature might not always be the easiest. But aside from that, which isn't really in much he can do about at this point, this age, but definitely skill-wise, he could uh, definitely open some eyes in America, I think. Hopefully, hopefully, yeah. It'd be nice to see him um, do impress and maybe get a full-time ride then. Just before we wrap up, uh, <sighs> one final question. Out, oh, of no. the, out of the EMX 250 riders moving up for next year, who are you looking forward to seeing the most in MX2? Really annoyingly, that was the question I was going to ask you. Oh, well, there we go then. But. Well, uh, do you want me to start then? No, no, no. Oh, okay, okay. I think with Kevin Horgmo, we've sort of seen it before a wee bit. So we kind of know what to expect in terms of he's going to be a good rider and can he get into the, into the top 10. So that's interesting for me to see if he can go to the next level. But I think it's going to be a bit obvious. It has to be Everett because he isn't a great starter in EMX2. Well, where he's going next year, allow him to get the starts, but also how much more can he develop? He's developed quite quickly in the last two years, I would say. He's shown that he has the stuff to be competitive in MX2 with brief appearance this year and even Dis Nations. So I'm really interested to see. Obviously, he has the name, but I think he has the talent. And I'm really interested to see how quickly he can progress in that class. I think, to me, he can if he can get out of the gate. He might be the, the best rookie next year. Yeah, uh, hard to argue, but I'm looking forward to seeing Hakon Fredriksson the most, to be honest. I just love watching him ride, and it's going to be fun to watch him start 25th every week and pass riders left, right, and centre, because uh, his starts probably aren't going to be the strongest. But if they are, I think watch out for him, because he's got a lot of speed. Yeah, and he can also elbow you out of the road if needs yeah, to be the yeah, same exactly, compared to everyone yeah, else. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and he's, he's very aggressive, and he doesn't take any uh, prisoners, so I do feel like if, even if his starts are bad, which we're expecting, I think he will slice through the field plenty of times. Should be interesting. He did finish 15-15 at his first MX2 GP attempt in Arco de Trento. Give him a full winter uh, and uh, uh, gelled more with the Yamaha, which we think he'll be on an MX2. It could be an interesting one to watch. Yeah, I think speed-wise he'll definitely be there. It's just those starts. 
Yeah. That could create a false impression of where his yeah. speed is if you're just going to look at results. So I'd yeah, actually exactly. hope for him he isn't battling from the back every round because people like to see results on paper. And I think if he if he can get the starts, he can show how, how good he is. But kind of a wee bit like Kevin Horgmo, they've both got the talent, but you, you need to get away with the top riders to yeah. really fulfill it. See, that's why my question was who you're looking forward to seeing in MX do the most. Because I don't think Fredrickson will have the best results out of them, but I'm looking forward to seeing him slicing through the field. <laughs> For me, it's still Everts because A, he's a really nice riding style to watch. And B, you, you obviously have that Everts name. And because he hasn't raced as much as those other riders, because he didn't really race much when he was younger, there's still a question mark, or there's still a higher ceiling I think he can go to. And for me, the most interesting thing then regarding that is how high is the ceiling? And for the first time, he's going to the highest level pretty much world championship wise, the MX2 at his age. And we're going to start to see how high the ceiling can be for Liam Everts. Yeah, it's going to be interesting, especially in sand. I think, you know, he'll be in, and in certain motos, I think he'll be knocking on the door for, for maybe top five occasionally. And then outside of that, I think he'll probably be in around 10 to 15. I don't think that's unrealistic. I'd be surprised if, you know, he, he's worse than the top 15, maybe at the start of the year. But, you know, once he finds his feet and stuff like that, I think he'll be at least a consistent top 15 guy in the top 10 quite a lot. And then on his good days, knocking on the door for top fives, probably. I think that's realistic. I think he's been somewhat fast-tracked into this. If you consider his... Injury in AMX125, and he started out leading the championship. So he never got that full season's experience. He came back from injury, rode AMX250 this year, and Stefan said actually he wasn't sure what they were going to do for next year. But he's shown so much speed and, and progression. I guess they feel he is good enough for MX2 already. So Liam's only spent one year in AMX125 really properly, where he was a legitimate guy and pretty young. And again, this year he's one year in AMX250 as his first full season where the results really count and now straight to MX2 so to me that shows he's lacking a bit of experience in terms of race miles but he's shown that when he's given the opportunity to go up a level he's the ability to do it so that's why this MX2 season really intrigues me as far as him, as far as he goes Yeah, I mean I think it's it's a question of it's hard to turn an MX2 ride down so I don't think if they, got, if, they got, if they didn't get an MX2 offer, I think they would have been happy enough with the MX250 and really go for the championship there because I think he still would have improved as a rider in that class and then maybe doing the odd um, wild card in MX2. But when an MX2 offer comes your way, especially with, with satellite support, it's hard to turn it down and who can blame him? It's, it's an opportunity of a lifetime, really. And you might not get that again. Obviously, it being average, he will because he's got that much talent. But, you know... You might not get the same the same ride the the year after if you turn it down. So yeah, it's hard to turn it down when it's there. So it'll be interesting to see how he takes the race in MX2. Definitely will. Right, Annie, that wraps up the 2021 MXGP season review. Unbelievable season. You actually couldn't have scripted it any better if you tried. In fact, if you tried to write a script for this year, it probably wouldn't have been believed by anyone who read it. So well done to everyone involved. Antonio Caroli, the one sad aspect of this season is that he's retiring. You mentioned being greedy before. I would have loved to have seen him stay for another year because he's he's almost too fast to retire at the minute. But fair play to him for, for taking that decision. Hopefully we'll get the same race of it next year as well. Congratulations, Jeffrey Hurlings, on a phenomenal comeback. But also congratulations to Tim Geyser, Roman Favre, Jorge Prado, Caroli, and latterly Jeremy Sear for getting in amongst it. 
fantastic season, amazing riders, and let no one kid you, the MXGP World Championship is the most prestigious championship in the world and the best motocross series on the planet. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye-bye, Andy. Speak to you again. Thanks very much. All the best.